0: Welcome to episode 9 of Coffee and Circuses. Hope everyone has had a good Christmas. This week on the show I'm talking to Rebecca Rusherwood, who is an assistant professor in Late Antique and Early Byzantine Studies at Trinity College in Dublin. Rebecca's been pretty mobile in her career thus far, having lectured at UCL, Nottingham, Durham and St. Andrews, so gradually moving more and more north as time has progressed and then suddenly doing a left turn towards Dublin, where she now is, on a permanent contract. So today, We're talking about how she's settling into life in Dublin. Uh, We're also chatting about her work on political memory and late antiquity and how a visit to the Basilica Nova in Rome set her on the path towards this, why she hates the Emperor Julian but also kind of owes him a debt of gratitude, acting as an advisor for a TV show, and how when she's in need of a pick-me-up, Gladiator is still her go-to film. Also, as I haven't mentioned it for a few weeks, don't forget if you want to attend the Theoretical Roman Archaeology Conference at Kent this April, tickets are available online, with early bird prices set until the 14th of January. Um, I started to buy mine, so that's a good reminder for myself. We're just putting the final touches to the schedule, but you can check out the list of sessions online at the Trek website. So if you want to find that, just chuck it into your Google machine and it comes up pretty easily. So, thanks for joining me, and as this is going out on New Year's Eve, Happy New Year! (music) Such <music> o I think the best scene in all of Star Wars where Darth Vader goes mental mm-hmm. in that corridor. Apparently,
1: they added that in oh, because yeah. they did the pre-felt pre-screenings and people were like, "It's a bit boring, there's no lightsaber. So they were like, "Okay, let's add a badass lightsaber felt it like scene." And I watched that and I'm like, "Yeah, that's absolutely." But the thing, there weren't two lightsabers though, That's the problem with that film. I like it, you know. I like it where it's not a it's not a duel. Yeah. It's just Darth Vader beating the out of some poor people yeah it's not the same
0: no, it was actually one of those few times I think in the cinema with me and all my friends
1: like, like collective holding breath well, it wasn't even holding breath we were literally like oh my god Like, like <laughs>
0: everyone was just like holy sh! this is the most amazing so thing so
1: we had that. I had that with my friends I went to went to see Last Jedi and that moment where um, Ren catches catches the lightsaber everyone was just like and then it all goes quiet there was a yeah, there was some good reactions from my from my fellow attendees. It was great.
0: <laughs> so you moved to Dublin mm-hmm. earlier this year,
1: was it now? It started in August. Mm-hmm. Yes.
0: The last time I saw you I was very hungover in Dublin. <laughs> <laughs> really and yet really
1: you went to see the Book of Cows, which is admirable. Yeah,
0: was, that was after a long trip around Ireland and going out and sampling the <laughs> delights of Dublin the night before, but so, you've been out there now for, so yeah, so about half a year-ish.
1: Yeah.
0: My maths is not great.
1: Four, four, five months. Okay, I, for some
0: reason in my head is longer than that, but you've moved around a fair bit. It feels a
1: bit. like a long time. Yeah,
0: you've moved around a fair bit, because you were at St Andrews <laughs> before that, you were at
1: UCL before that? Uh, so I was at too. St Andrews before that, and then Durham before that, and then Nottingham before that, and then UCL before that.
0: Wow. So. a lot of experience. But this is the country
1: move was a big one here. Yeah. That was definitely a lot more stuff to figure out. Um, I kind of got used to the sort of rhythms of moving in the summer for work. But I think quite dawned on me that I don't have... Like, my life for the last few years has been job applications, job interviews, job applications, job interviews, teaching, working out a new teaching environment... Then maybe having a little bit of research time of all of that, and it's very taxing, particularly the, the applications and the interviews are very taxing. It's a very taxing experience. So it hasn't quite like dawned on me that I don't necessarily have to do that anymore. I haven't quite got my head around that. Yeah.
0: How are you finding living in Dublin?
1: <laughs> Dublin is it's great. It's it's I'm mean, from London originally, so it's nice to be back in a big city. Ireland is a lot more different than I expected it to be culturally, and it's taken me a while to get through that because um, I'm such an annoying English person <laughs> so dealing with certain sort of Irishisms I find really endearing but sort of I just I feel a bit out of my depth sometimes with certain things and the department like it's you know it's just a different it's a different well there's different fund- funding bodies it's different funding systems there's no ref there there's no TeF there so it's kind of it's an extra element of finding my feet in it all I think, which is so it's been it's been it's been a challenge. But I really like the teaching and doing I'm doing a Constantine module, which I'm really enjoying. <laughs> um forty four just... hours in class on Constantine, even I will struggle to wow. find forty four hours on the Emperor Constantine. <laughs> but no the students are the students are great. But it's a very small department, it's the smallest department I've worked in, so it's a lot it's you know, it's a four year course so it's a lot of sort of all hands on deck. Mm.
0: Two questions. Does Guinness taste better in Ireland?
1: To be honest, I don't really drink Guinness in the UK, but I always drink it in Ireland because I feel like it should taste better in Ireland. It was only after going to the Guinness factory that I learned that I've always been drinking Guinness incorrectly. <laughs> I, mean, oh. I, I never wait for it to settle I didn't realise that you're supposed to gulp it like rather than just sip the head, which is much more... So,
0: Did you I, get a certificate when you were there? <laughs> this
1: person knows how to drink Guinness. <laughs> No, I did not.
0: Did you I've got stuff going on. They they did a thing where you had to... Oh, I didn't pull a pint. I didn't oh. pull a pint.
1: I'm not that advanced. I'm only at the drinking Guinness yeah, stage. It's up there on my wall
0: now next to my PhD. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, I, I, I don't know, but I drink a lot of Guinness in Dublin, so it tastes really good, so I keep coming back. <laughs> okay,
0: people, people say that it tastes better out there. I think it does taste better out there, but then when I was talking to Andy Gardner for the podcast, mm. we had this discussion, and he was like, Is it just one of those sensory things where people tell you it has to taste better, so it does, and it doesn't really, but you think it does because you're in Dublin. I'm not sure if that's true or not. I'm pondering it more and more now, whether or not I've been fooled into thinking that the Guinness tasted better when I was there. I'm just
1: fascinated to know what it tastes like before they put the nitrogen in it, before it was so... Because apparently it was really bad. Oh really? You know, originally, you know, before they before it had the bubbles and the head and all of that stuff, mm-hmm. it must have tasted completely different. So,
0: mm-hmm. yeah. Second question: Do mm-hmm. you an Irish actor?
1: Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> I would never try. I would never try. I would insult everybody I know. I'm already like currently the base. You know, my struggle is the fact of the amount of Irish names on my class registers, and I look at them and I said. And that's your name to me and I look at it I like there's no resemblance to what is written down on the page so that is my story. I'm really I really struggle with student names anyway I'm really good with faces but I'm really bad with names but adding the gay I just can't I'm just really struggling with it like especially the the, the, men, the, the boys names the male names are much harder I find because the, the women's names you know Neve and Aoife and stuff like that I'm more familiar with from the UK but I'm completely out of my depth uh. <laughs> Yeah.
0: So you're getting. You finished the book now?
1: So close, so close. Um, I'm just doing a final sort of reference checking at the moment. Um, And I'm. I have the only thing I have left to write, which I've given myself the Christmas break for, is uh, the conclusion, the new conclusion, which I want to be quite short and snappy.
0: For anybody who doesn't know, what's
1: the. Uh, Um, so, the, the book is on political disgrace in the Constantinian period. So, um, it's four case studies. So, I say Constantinian because three of them are during the reign of Constantine, and one of them is during the reign of Constantine's sons. And it is what is the, the, the phrase which is thrown around is damnatio memoriae. Um, one of the interesting developments from the PhD thesis to the book is I cut all of the damnatio memoriae out of it originally I use it because it's such a convenient shorthand and people you say it and people who know about it recognize what that is and that's really really helpful but I was going through when I went through my manuscript I realized that every single time I used this phrase I was kind of kind of shortchanging myself like I wasn't getting out of the material what I could get out of it because it comes with all of these baggage and all of these assumptions so pretty much what the book is Contributing is it's again arguing against this the assumptions that we use when we use the term damnatio memoriae that it's sort of it's immediate, so like someone declares a damnatio memoriae and it happens everywhere, kind of totalizing that it happens really stringently because so, it doesn't.
0: I've got a question about that because I was doing a seminar recently on Domitian, also attorney mm. says life of Domitian, so Domitian goes damnatio memoriae. According and to Suetonius. The, well, the, one of the students said to me, so how come Suetonius writes about him? Yeah. And I was like, well, that's this a really is, good question. this, is the, third, like, no, this is
1: the third misconception, is that it's about, for, it's about social amnesia. So it's about ordering people to forget Things. And, are, you know, we come to... One of the reasons why the the concept of Amnati memoria really appeals to us is because of its similarities to sort of 21st, first uh, twenty 20th century totalitarian regimes and stuff like that. George Orwell, 1984, so this idea that you can vaporise somebody and, you know, but that, that isn't what it was about. It was not about forgetting. It was about mm-hmm. infamy and it was about dishonour.
0: But, I mean, in terms of, like, if Suetonius writes this life of domitian who then is actually able to read... Can he still disseminate that quite widely? Oh, absolutely.
1: Um, There's no, you know... This is not mind control. This is not memory, social memory control. We have to be very careful about avoiding anachronism here because what is actually very cool about it is if you strip all that away the whole looking at these processes in detail tells us about how people living in the Roman Empire view their position within it. So how they receive messages about people they've never heard of who apparently fallen from power and what they do when they respond to those messages or in many cases don't respond to those messages. So it's actually a really interesting lens to, to, to use to think about how the Roman Empire worked, like practically and kind of conceptually as well. So that is that is what I'm sort of contributing to it. And also because it's a, a transitional period, the Constantinian period. So a lot of the, this work has been on, you know, Nero, Domitian, things like that. The um, main shift is I just use a lot of inscriptions. Mm. A lot of inscriptions. I, it's made the last five years of my life misery, the amount of inscriptions that I have trawled through. Um, because I sort of, as a naive PhD student, was like oh, I wonder how many of these are actually erased. So, of course, I just catalogued the whole lot and worked out that, obviously, a far fewer number of, of imperial names are erased from inscription than we think, or that the ancient sources would lead us to think. And the problem here was to have this big gap between rhetoric and reality, and they are creating this rhetoric. This rhetoric is being generated within the ancient context because they love this idea of... Uh, Disgrace and dishonor, and the you know people's disgraceful deaths, and the destruction of their images, and the destruction of their laws, and the you know their elimination from collective memory, whilst engaging in a process which means they will never be forgotten from collective memory. So this this paradox existed in antiquity as well, but we have to be very careful that we should not read that and find it replicated in the material record of the Roman Empire. That's not. We have to sort of you know. You know, appreciate the fact that there is a difference between this rhetoric and the reality, and that we are creating, we are sort of continuing this rhetoric if we keep throwing down Martyr Memorial around. I think we just have to be very careful with it. Though I use it as a shorthand anyway, I find it very. But in the context of the book, I just wanted to take it away because I wanted to propose something new. And I felt that it was standing in the way of what we could get out of the material, really.
0: Who are your case studies of? Is one of them Christmas?
1: oh uh, yes, uh, Christmas. One of my students says that he sounds like a breakfast cereal, and I can never unhear this. Now. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, four case studies. Um, Maximian. He was the the. Um, father-in-law of Constantine who's one of the kind of paradigms of disgrace and actually because his the destruction of his his, his images is featured in a number of definition accounts so people have kind of fixated on this one. My second one is Licinius who is I feel one of the most short-changed Roman emperors because he's always so overshadowed by Constantine but he's Constantine's last um, imperial colleague who I think had a major impact on the development of various sort of Aspects of the empire in that period, but we kind of he gets very shortchanged. Um, and my third one is Crispus, who is the uh, the breakfast cereal. <laughs> no, he's the uh, the son of Constantine, who is executed in mysterious circumstances in three two six.
0: Is it possible? Isn't the general story that Constantine's wife, who's not, who's like his stepmother at the time. Sets him up, and then Constantine finds out that he was set up, and then because he ends up executing her as well, doesn't he? Mm.
1: Yeah, I think my problem with that is, is that there is the evidence for it is so problematic, but people have really. Jumped on this narrative, the of Hippolytus kind of narrative, or what, and it, it, for me, like, no one has sufficiently pointed out how deeply misogynistic this mm. this explanation for Faustus' downfall is. I kind of survey all of that, but what I sort of offer in its place is the fact that we really haven't looked at the the epigraphic evidence um, properly, and that is a real oversight because what the epic erasing somebody's name from inscription that is our most sort of contemporaneous and immediate evidence for how people reacted to this emperor's downfall, and considering the the literary evidence is very, very problematic and really quite late for it, I think we have to kind of take that out and put it at the front of our minds of how we think about what happened to Crispus, and to a lesser extent, Faustra as well in that. And then the final chapter, which is the one I've just finished rewriting, is on Magnentius. It's another short-changed individual. So the... um, He always gets called a usurper, but I avoid the term usurper because, again, I think it kind of, it allows us to be more dismissive than I think um, we should be about figures like this. So he um, was responsible for the death of the youngest son of Constantine and ruled a a large part of the Western Empire for uh, almost three years, over three years, over three years, (laughs) Um, uh, before he was eliminated. And he's just a really interesting figure because the whole episode required this sort of rapid recalibration of memory because uh, people had been living under Constantinian emperors for a very long time by this point, and this individual who came from very obscure origins, certainly a lot of the sources that he was a barbarian, various different versions of barbarian, and yet people backed him substantially. Even after a military defeat, people back, continued to back him. And his ideology is fascinating. So he was creating this idea of himself as this, um, this liberator from... Presumably, Constantinian tyranny so he's a really interesting character there so I look at I look at that sort of how he constructed himself or how people constructed him um, but also I look at epigraphic arrays of that and that's not so uh, attacks on Constans the emperor who he killed and who might have been doing that and why and then also how we have this sort of shift back when Magnentius gets defeated and um, we, we look at how people are then dealing with this kind of rapid shift in who is in charge and look it was very forward-looking. So people agreed with this narrative of what had happened because it served the interests of everybody. It served, you know, social continuity in the West and the whole empire to, to create this image of Magnentius as someone who was a barbarian and a tyrant and all of these things, yeah. So that's the book. (laughs) Now I just have to write a conclusion. (laughs) A short, snappy, deeply profound conclusion.
0: (laughs) How did you come to this topic originally?
1: It's actually a story that I tell my undergraduates when they do their dissertation because it was actually a little bit of a, you know, it's drawing from my undergraduate dissertation. I was like, you never know where this might take, you guys. (laughs) Yeah, it's... um, I did my undergraduate dissertation on Maxentius and the, the Basilica Nova in Rome and looking at Damnatium Memoriae. I realise I'm doing um, hand commas and you can't see them because it's a recording. <laughs> oh dear. Um, yeah, I, I, I did it on that. Uh, it was a sort of a mix of. Archaeology and numismatic evidence and various things, but it's funny because Maxentius is not not a major feature of that. Obviously, he crops up, but he doesn't have his own chapter. And one of the readers really wanted to have a chapter on Maxentius, and I'm really against it. And it's my book, so I get my way. Yeah. <laughs> no, I just I feel like um, Maxentius has been overdone somewhat, and the kind of analysis I was, I was doing wasn't lending itself to that. But that's what got me in was. And that was, again, that came from going to, uh, on the British School of Rome, the undergraduate summer school thing in September. And I saw, and the, I mean, the Basilica Nova has such a presence in the Forum, like it's enormous, even though two-thirds of it has fallen down. And to hear to that, you know, that most emblematic statue of Constantine was found in that space there. And that's, I just found it, it was so evocative. So, I just wanted to write about the Basilica Nova, pretty much. Apparently,
0: someone I think recently
1: published an article
0: arguing that the statue of Constantine—that's one in the Capitoline Museum, right—the mm. the really iconic one. Apparently, they think it's a recut statue of Hadrian.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, that's been known for a while. Um, that it was well, certainly recut because there's no way that they got a lump of that kind of marble. In Rome, fresh in that period, of that size, certainly recarved. It's likely it would be Hadrian. There is an argument that it was recarved as Maxentius and then recarved. But I mean, it's a lot. Of this the problem about a lot of these things. Tracking these things is it's really difficult to prove. But it certainly is recarved. Yeah.
0: Do you think he built the temple? Of, is it the Divine Romulus, which is just up the street? because well, um, that's a bit sketchy isn't it nobody really knows it's about yeah. that circular building nobody really knows well
1: the you. one with the this the, the semicircular entrance yeah um it's a really difficult one I mean what the, the best evidence we have for these kind of structures are, are Maxentius's coinage for example and uh, you know has it been argued that actually a lot of this was symbolic rather than actual buildings being constructed but it makes sense because, I mean one of the reasons why people have written so much about him and his disgrace and his legacy is the fact that he made such an enormous impact on the city of Rome and people love the city of Rome archaeologists historians everyone loves him so we're kind of drawn to him as a case study uh, I just didn't I was kind of drawn away from him because firstly he'd been he he'd been had been done and been done so well by other people in this kind of study but also I just I'm really interested in the empire as a whole. I wanted to step away from the city of Rome, but yeah, that's how I came to it. Which is funny because my MA I didn't do anything to do with it. And usually, it's the MA dissertation which leads to your PhD, but my MA did something completely different. So, <laughs> what was that? I wrote about the city of Rome again. Um, I wrote about Roman, as in from the city of Rome, identity from the mid to late 4th century. So I looked at Christian, uh, non-Christian, um, and sort of the idea of Romanitas in the city of Rome. It was a very ambitious project. <laughs> But no, it was, it was a fantastic, it was later than I had gone before, so right up to you know, the, the start of the 5th century as well. So, um, But yeah, just again, what I tend to do, I just love combining lots of different forms of evidence, so everything from apps, mosaics, to coins, to poetry, to everything, yeah.
0: So, take me right back to the very beginning, so why ancient history, why the Roman world, what got you off on that, that track?
1: I've always been obsessed with really old things. I can remember this as a child, but the ancient history thing was quite, as a bit of a later development, not super late, but fairly late. I was talking to my, my parents about this the other day because my earliest ever memory <laughs> was the Palace of Knossos, the dolphin mosaic, which of course, the fresco, which isn't actually in the palace, it's in the museum. But I have this really vivid memory of seeing these blue dolphins. And I asked my parents how old I was. And apparently I was two years and four months old. so oh, That's wow. a very early memory. So clearly something... So this is what happens is that whenever my career wasn't going well, whether I couldn't get a job or articles were rejected, I would blame my parents. So I was like... Why did you take me around all these amazing archaeological sites? Why did you buy me that comic book about Greek mythology? This is entirely your fault. Why didn't you convince me that accountancy or law was really cool instead? Um, But yeah, no, it was definitely my parents taking me around things. Uh, My brother not enjoying it very much, but me being obsessed. Apparently, I really like to run under the barriers at archaeological sites and hug pots and refuse to come out Uh (laughs) as a child uh yeah so i've really loved old just old things even if it was paleolithic stuff greek stuff much more than roman stuff i came to the romans quite a lot later i did a lot of art at school art was my big thing but I was always drawn into the, the, the ancient world and Egyptology, which is a lot of people's gateway drug, I think. Mm. Growing up in London at the British Museum and walking through those, those galleries, it was just, so it was it, Egyptology did it for me as well. For the Romans, this was a later development. So I didn't do Latin or Greek formally at school, I did do a bit of Latin in like in my first and second years of school, but I didn't do a GCSE or anything like that. Um, I did Classical civilization AS and A level, and that's when I was like, "Oh, maybe I won't go to art school." <laughs> but we only did Greek stuff, so we did a lot of Greek pottery, Greek sort of um, religious sites, and we did tragedy and Homer. And then the only bit of Roman stuff we did was uh, Virgil's Aeneid, but I don't remember thinking that much about the context of it. It was very much seeing it as part of Homer. So I went to, so when I applied for university, I decided with my active middle class rebellion not to go to art school, but to go and study ancient history instead. Such a rebel. I really wanted to do Homer. That's what I was interested in when I went to uni. I liked Homer.
0: So you've literally gone from one extreme of ancient history to the opposite Absolutely. end, where are literally late antiquity.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think this is it. So people always ask me how, you, why you're interested in ancient history, and I aspire to a world oh, Sorry, ancient history. And why people ask me like why you're interested in late antiquity? And I aspire to a position where we're not not asking that because it's just assumed, why wouldn't you be? It's so cool, why wouldn't you be? Usually it's this idea that someone must have taught you a random module which just happened to go late. No one has to justify why they're interested in Augustus. (laughs) Um, I suppose
0: Constantine is a new Augustus. That's how he presents himself, anyway.
1: Mm, That's how he's been interpreted, yeah. Well, we fall into this constant argument of who was better, who was more like, who made a larger impact know, Augustus or Constantine, which is just such a, such a, yeah, anyway, so I, um, I went, so I was interested in Greek stuff, the older the better, so I did Greek when I went to uni, um, I did tragedy, I I mixed up a lot of stuff, I did a lot of visual culture stuff, so I did a lot of very good visual culture modules, which kind of like, mm, I was interested in this. I was interested in the sort of the transference of my teeth from, from the Greek world to the Roman world. But my moment was I had, um, I never really went, I think we went up to Constantine, we went up to the Arch of Constantine and then we stopped because that's when ancient history stopped. But I did a, in second year, I did an extended source study on uh, a panegyric of Julian, in praise of Julian. Um, and I was hooked. I was completely hacked. It was really, it was really it was it was, it was an independent source study. So I wasn't I wasn't lectured on it. I just went away and read and I was just absolutely obsessed. I was really obsessed about this this idea of it, always been obsessed with the idea of imperial ideology and this idea of speech and praise of someone. I didn't see it as particularly effusive. So I think some people can find them quite repulsive because of they are quite over the top, but I loved it.
0: Do you think Julian though is one of those people that's he's one of those emperors that's given more attention than he deserves? Oh,
1: absolutely, a hundred percent. It's what, um, two, three years on the front? I know. Doesn't really. This is, oh my good goodness, well. that's as long as Magnentius ruled for. No one talks about Magnentius in the same way. Yeah, no, people, I think my actual theory is that one of the reasons why Julian has attracted a lot of attention is because scholars see themselves in the figure of Julian. Because I guess he's a so, scholarly yeah. figure. So he appeals to them. Where I always just found him a you know a bit of a, a bit repulsive in certain ways his attitudes um from what you can tell and also I mean to his to his benefit and to his detriment so much of his writing survives, which is why there's just so much to say there but yeah so I was talking about Julian um and yeah and I I, I submitted it for an essay prize so I got a, which I won so I got a bursary to go to the British school at rhyme for the summer school as an undergraduate so that was the kind of like, I was like clearly we're on to something here so I got to write that Well I haven't said all the stuff
0: about Judy you you're, you're clearly have <laughs> a certain level of debt.
1: Well, well maybe I am i have just I'm reassessing everything now <laughs> well i my favorite thing about the speech is it doesn't treat julian as though he's julian the apostate the special one it treats him like he is an emperor who should be praised and part of a long tradition about how we do that and that's what i liked about it but yeah and then in my third year i did a, my dissertation i did i did a module on justinian with doug lee which that was i was like i didn't realize we we're allowed to do this nation's sixth century my god and that was just fascinating. And a lot of our, you know, a lot of my my friends, you know, still from university comment on how that was one of their favourite modules, because it was just so similar and so different to what we had studied. And it was taking, it was just such a new context. So I was completely hooked. But one of my first meetings with my dissertation supervisor, or my PhD supervisor was, so why are you interested in integrity? <laughs> it's the constant, the constant question, Yeah. I don't think I ever intended to write a book about Constantine. It was never my intention. No.
0: Is Constantine actually your favourite emperor? No. <laughs> That's um, no. Oh,
1: Jenny,
0: he <laughs> what he was No. My chair claps under me. Careful.
1: You were leaning back into... You made a smug Const- Constantine come in and that. This is what you get.
0: Being smoked by God. I don't...
1: I don't think he's my... Mm, I just find him utterly intriguing. I don't like him. I don't know who my favourite emperor is, to be honest. Probably someone really obscure. A nerva. Pertinax. I like That's Emperor. I like Pertinax because I like any emperor who had an afterlife, which is much more interesting in his actual reign. Yeah. The yeah. thing is, I'm I'm having to have a taste of my own medicine now because I'm doing um, <laughs> historical consultancy for a TV show on Augustus. So oh, <laughs> okay. at the moment, so I'm having to. Um, really, do a lot of background research on bits of Augustus that I, I've never thought about at all. Uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. Though I love the questions you get asked. They're just—it's—it's—it's it's, it's, the thing that I enjoy most about it is how, firstly, it's communicating to a different audience, which I really like. But it's the same kind of material, it's the same context, but what is asked of you is completely different. I get an email being like, "What did the Romans wear in bed?" Good question. I was sitting here, I was sitting in the School of Classics in um, St Andrews thinking, I guarantee you that not a single of the eminent scholars in this building could answer this question. (laughs) But I did sort of find an answer. A lot of it is just sort of saying probably this, I don't know, Mm. or these are the parameters that I give you to do this sort of stuff. But it's a mixture of the sort of the, the work I'm doing is a mixture of sort of historical context but also kind of social like how was someone of a certain status might have interacted with someone with another status as well hopefully it won't go down well I'm waiting to log into Facebook and to see comments from all my academic friends so the majority of my friends on Facebook appear to be academics be like the words who was the historical consultant uh, this and me being like that be me <laughs> yeah um i i can't i think i think for them if they think there's a roman historian they know everything that happened the roman i was very very clear when i took on the project that i specialize in a period 300 years later about what they're working to be honest they wanted to work with me because i'm a woman that that is why i got one of the reasons why i got the job um because which is again this this problem that you have with this when you're like you like the opportunity but you maybe don't like why it came your way. So I've been very clear about what my job is in the project. Like I'm not going to I will do historical accuracy and stuff like that, but I'm not going to fix sort of any, you know, I'm not offering a feminist perspective on things. That's not my job as a his, as a, you know. I'm not a feminist consultant. I'm an ancient history consultant. So, mm. <laughs> yeah.
0: Do you think you'll be able to square a walk-on part?
1: Oh my god, I hope so. Hopefully not an orgy scene or something like that. It's quite explicit. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite it's quite Game of Thrones style. I'm such a prude. I keep you it. Be like, oh, oh, goodness. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, no, uh, I hope so. That would be amazing. But I don't know, we'll see. We'll see when it goes into production. I'd be like, you know, get to be in a cavalry charge or something. Not that there are any cavalry charges. Because
0: I'm guessing they'll have to film it in the mid somewhere. Yeah. Because they have those. Don't the sets from Rome still survive they have, they looked, out, no, they, they, They've
1: they. had two fires there. They have been to Tuna to look at the sets there. So it's quite possible that you might use them on the HBO Rome sets. I think I'd make a really good, like, German slave girl. I think that would work. <laughs> no, scrap that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's fun. It's just something a bit different. Yeah, nice. Yeah. It's... My co- colleagues have been a bit unsure about it like because it doesn't take up a huge amount of time but it's yeah it's seeing the value of something like that because it is ultimately is disseminating what we do to a wider audience is a very important part of what we as academics do it's just possibly not the medium that I thought I would be doing it in initially but it's a random opportunity that came my way and I'm really really enjoying it so
0: who knows? You might get called from Ridley Scott being, "Can you advise me on Gladiator 2 Because uh, he's making it, apparently, uh, and he keeps coming up on this podcast repeatedly. I keep bringing it up and talking about it.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, oh God, I love Gladiator. Gladiator was one of my was one of my things that got me into Roman history. Potentially, and now we
0: can teach students that weren't born when it came out.
1: Oh my God, that's terrifying. I was 2000, yeah. so I wasn't old enough to but see it yeah, in the cinema. I remember distinctly my parents had it on VCR, which definitely dates it. Um, but I remember when I finally saw it, like that was like, it was rousing. Sometimes, if I'm having a really bad day at work and I'm like, why do I do this? I play the Gladiator soundtrack. Because yeah. <laughs> I'm like, okay, this reminds me, because music is very emotive, and I'm like, this is it. This is what, this is why I'm here, this is why I'm doing it. Let's forget all the sort of the day-to-day difficulties that can crop up and kind of get back to the essence of how cool is it that we get to do this as a job
0: just lose yourself in Hans Zimmer for a while oh
1: yeah walk through a field <laughs> yeah
0: although he kind of does the same tune in a lot of films
1: oh absolutely it's the, the genius of Hans <laughs> Zimmer
0: of the Caribbean and Gladiator
1: The Battle both excellent soundtracks both excellent kind of the same thing but... yeah they are very similar I don't know it's just it's, it's, it's iconic it's iconic role i'm interested to see what they're gonna do when the protagonist dies you always wonder what they're gonna do with the sequel well they they
0: reckon that it's gonna be based around the boy um mm. so i don't know how that's gonna play out
1: i was just because i knew nothing about roman history when i watched it and i remember asking one of my teachers like so did they restore the republic and she was like no. <laughs> was
0: like, they just had a massive su- civil war. Like such
1: a disappointment.
0: Five different emperors. Is that, was that
1: it? Was that it? Did they restore the Have republic? you ever seen the
0: original that it was based on? No. Because it's, uh, it's a remake yeah, of yeah, the maybe. fall of the Roman Empire with um, oh, yes.
1: Yes. Yeah, yeah.
0: Alec Guinness as Marcus Aurelius, yeah. Obi-Wan. Obi- Obi- but at the end of that, I think they do actually auction off the Imperial throne, mm-hmm. which is actually more realistic. Oh, no, that's great. Later. That's a
1: great moment. Um,
0: but yeah, gladiator makes it much more of an upbeat ending where it's not really.
1: Do, <laughs> ooh, ooh, ooh. absolutely. Now, I think, I think that should probably be left. It's so iconic in itself. I think it should be left. But yeah, no, this it's an interesting one because I think as a consultant, you learn to pick your battles a little bit. So there's only a sort of thing where I give them parameters. So I'm like, mm-hmm, I don't know. And there's only a couple of things that I've put my foot down and said no i said you know the the sternest thing i've ever said is if you do this people who know about this period might switch over Mm. which seemed to work (laughs) but i think you realize that you can't control everything because i was really i'm such a perfectionist i was really worried that i would be picked up on something and somebody who's special someone who's written a phd thesis on uh roman weddings will pick pick my you know be really angry about how I allow this portrayal of a Roman wedding to take place but I tried my best considering what the expanse of what they were asking but, but yeah no, it's fun it's fun work
0: you've got to be flexible on that stuff though as well it's yeah. never there we're going to be entirely accurate That's so much we know impossible. we don't know we don't know
1: And also, like, the the one problem I had was with, you know, satire. So just because something is said in the satire doesn't mean it actually happened. So having an argument about whether something actually realistically happened in Roman social context, just because it's a feature in juvenile martial, doesn't mean that it actually happened. There must be a core of realism there, otherwise it wouldn't be satire. But that was really difficult for me when they just wanted a yes or no answer. When I was like, oh, it's satirical, so I don't really. They're like, no, no, stop being an academic, yes or no. <laughs> yeah, it's a challenge.
0: I'd just say, yes, just run with it, just go with it.
1: Oh, yeah, well, at least I'm now covered by Trinity's liability insurance on the huh. endeavour. <laughs> yeah.
0: There's a, film, there's a film coming out now, an Italian film, which is about Romulus and Remus. Mm. I don't know if you've seen the trailer for mm. that at all. I saw it the other day, because... There's a really good show on Netflix called, um, Sabura.
1: <laughs> okay.
0: Yeah, a show called Sabura that was on Netflix.
1: What's the, what's the premise?
0: Um, it's about three young guys who all, for different reasons, kind of get up, caught up in this war, gangster war for land in Ostia. Um, it's not, but this is like modern series. Uh, It's really good. It's really, really good. It's got 100% of raw tomatoes. But one of the guys in that, he's playing one of Romulus and Remus in this this upcoming film as well. It's really good. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, no, that's definitely definitely a watch. I just love
1: any of it. I'm not... I mean, I used to, when I was younger, I used to be like, that's right, that's wrong. And I just can't be bothered anymore because I'm just so thrilled at anything that makes people interested in the ancient world. I just... I, d- I gave a lecture, like, for an evening course on um, Agora, 2009. Oh, it Agora was, it was
0: good. I like which it I really
1: right. enjoyed. But a lot of the audience, they wanted me to be like, this is, yeah, right. this is, you know, this is wrong. And I just don't want to engage in that kind of discourse. Like, for me, I think it's, you know, yes, it has errors in it, but, you know, it's a film, it's a story. And if, you know, if people watch it and they're inspired and they want to learn more, then go for it. And it was a definitely a better take on the the life of hypatia than you get from other I think sources so yeah.
0: although it's a bit of a strange film in terms of it does have those underlying aims mm. in terms of what it's saying about religion but then the problem is is that Alexandria itself is such a unique yeah. situation so I can see why people would have an issue with it that study that that area but also I like it <laughs> Yeah,
1: so I mean. So it's got Oscar Isaac in it before. Yeah, Poe Dameron as the hottest, the hottest prefect of Egypt ever known, ever known. Oh, yeah. No, it's, it is a good film. I think it's, it's, it's problematic in a number of ways. I can't decide how feminist a film it is. There's something about it. So it's about the fact that they present it, you know, they present it as, a, as an original, completely truthful take on her work. And we don't have that, so we don't we don't have any of Hypatia's work left. We're reconstructing this, and I think it's slightly disingenuous to say she changed the, how we view the you know the world and the cosmos. Is actually like the truth is It's, you know she was a very important woman in her community, and that's a story which is important enough to say in itself about saying she was a kind of Copernicus figure. Um,
0: what do you prefer, Rachel Wise as Hypatia? or Rachel Wise and the mummy
1: oh don't don't do that they're no, just completely different context i know it's
0: completely different context but if you have to choose between
1: the mm. mummy we'll always have a really really like like important place in my life. Mummy is
0: such a crappy girl. That oh first I just remember so I was weird. quite
1: young when I watched it and I remember distinctly because I was a real scaredy cat when I was a child. And I was wearing dungarees to the cinema which meant that I could hide in them whenever one of the uh, fleshy cockroach, like um, scarab beetles came up. Amazing. I am a librarian. <laughs> no, she's iconic in both of them. When that, you know, it's, she's, you know, she's, she's just such a fantastic actress. Yeah. She's just incredible.
0: It doesn't hold up too well CGI-wise now.
1: Agra, or The Mummy. The Mummy. I think we'd probably say the same of Agra in times I of haven't.: comes.
0: I haven't seen the, the remake that did mm. Tom Cruise. I mm. don't ever want to, apparently no. it's not very good.
1: Um, I don't know. I kind of see old CGI as quite charming now.
0: I mean, old CGI is like two years ago now, because it... Mm-hmm. Cause it it's advanced so quickly that even when you watch films it's just The prequel just Star
1: Wars. Whoa. That is a kind of like wait till the technology matures before you make it central to your film kind of lesson there. Yeah. Also, Jar Jar Banks
0: the best charge Jar Prince impression you've ever heard. Well. I won't be doing it on the podcast
1: though. No 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 please direct.
0: No, write. no, I'm not going to ever do it on the podcast.
1: Well no, you can't claim something like that no. and then you can, it, you're in really charge, you can cut it. I'll
0: do it, I'll do it on there.
1: Okay. So to take us
0: back around though to the main <laughs> benefit. <better theme. laughs> um, so from your perspective though, like in terms of the discipline of studying Roman history, Roman archaeology, etc., where would you like to see it go in future? And what would you what changes would you like to see perhaps come to fruition?
1: Very tricky question. Um, I think that... So there's some frustration with the way that... The kind of hoops that people have to jump through for funding. But I think that means that certain aspects, such as the way that what we do is packaged and communicated to the wider public, has become not just something that you do as a hobby, but something which is absolutely integral to everything we do. And I'm really enjoying this. And I'm I'm really looking forward to seeing... Where that takes what we talk about, and the kind of because I know that I don't know, like, for example, communication is quite central to how I view my research in itself, in terms of what is going on in the context. So, I find it endlessly inspiring watching all of these things interact with one another. Um, Otherwise, like, one of my favorite things about late antiquity is the fact that it is quite diverse the idea of what late antiquity is, it seems to be less sort of. it it brings people in from different universities, different disciplinary backgrounds, different backgrounds. And I really like the melting pot, which lay in the diversity that you find within late antiquity. So I'm hoping for more of this. I'm hoping for this world where interdisciplinary isn't just a tag world, tag word, like something that we we should do, but something which is absolutely fundamental. And I think this will feed back. So I'm kind of, I'm hopeful and I'm excited about what is going to come. Stuff like this, stuff like this podcast. This is people engaging our time is precious we don't have a lot of time there's never enough time to do everything that is expected of us as academics which is increasingly more and more Um, but to you know a world where people make time to do stuff like this I think is is wonderful yeah
0: thanks I'll take that as a compliment yeah
1: you should it's the only one you're getting (laughs) well when
0: you hear my Jar Jar impression
1: after I turn it off oh yeah so excited no I'm looking forward to having a bit of stability in life. I'm looking forward to actually being part of a department's future, which is a big thing. Because we start planning teaching and all of this stuff so early on, I'm really looking forward to actually having, having a role in the future of a department and an institution. And that's like a you know, and that's good things coming of that, you know, in the I realised that I have a kind of responsibility as the Omen, only Roman historian at Trinity College Dublin to do a lot of things, including work on the, uh, you know, try and relaunch the Irish Byzantine Society, something I'd really like to do. Bring some of the late antiquity network stuff to Ireland as well would be really nice. But I'm excited about new work. Sure. I like new, yeah. I thought you were going to ask me about diversity. I was interested in that one.
0: Oh, no, that's what I meant, though, in terms of where we are going the future. Yeah, talk about, talk about diversity, yeah, yeah.
1: But you didn't ask me, like, what, what do you mean about diversity?
0: I mean, when I talked about things like yeah. where the subject's going in your future, like, how do you see things like that evolving, developing?
1: Um, do, you, do you see
0: it changing at the moment, or do you think it's still...
1: I mean, it depends what you think mind. diversity is, because it's a lot of overlapping problems you know academia has a diversity problem classics in particular has a diversity problem we are a little behind the times in that we are you know really thinking about gender uh in quite sort of 15 years ago way at the moment whereas the way the contemporary world is thinking about gender is really quite different um and also doesn't we haven't Race is a really, really difficult one with with class and nation history. Um, so yeah, I feel I feel really confident that a lot of us are. I have rarely met anybody who is cruel about any of these topics. Most of it, I think that when there are problems, I mostly it's because people just haven't thought or haven't just planned out or haven't thought about. haven't questioned their own assumptions about how things should look or how things could pan out or what their responsibility in it and one thing I would always say is I think everybody has a responsibility to you know everyone has a role to play in this it's not just my job because I'm a woman (laughs) it's not uh anyone's job because you know it's not a senior person's job or a junior person's job or a everyone should be doing little bits and I'm constantly kind of Working out things that I could do, um, which can address problems, or just bring a diet, like bring a bring a conversation about it. So, like, I don't know. For example, my constant time module, I realize I I spend a long time not paying not drawing attention to my my gender. Mainly because I work in a sub discipline which is really male dominated, and I didn't want to draw attention to my difference because I didn't ultimately I didn't really feel very comfortable. And I think something kind of hit me around when the big volume came out on an area I'm obsessed with uh, a few years ago, and it was twenty chapters, and one of them was written by a female author, and I was kind of like, oh. And then with the whole manual debate, um, I told myself, I'm like, I'm finally in a slightly more secure position than I have been. I will call people out. Um, So that one thing I'm doing is I'm being... I am politely calling people out and in a constructive way to say, how did you end up in this situation? What do you think we might be able to do in the future to stop having a male-only conference? Again, like, what, what steps can we do? Not in a kind of, look what you've done, but a kind of, like... Maybe if we reframe this, maybe if we think about this, what can we do collectively? Also a little thing, so I now, because my constant time module is most, the majority of the scholarship written on it is by men. And I think this has an enormous impact on the questions that have been asked and why and how. Um, so now I have bibliographies with first names. So I, to me, you know, again, it's part of humanising them for the students, So they're not just, just the name, bracket, date. <laughs> they're actually people who come from a certain background. And so we can, within the context of a classroom, have a conversation about how the gender of the, you know, gender has informed modern discussions about certain things. So we had this, for example, we talked about Fausto and Christmas and other things the other day. We were like, why... Like, let's let like, you know because you can't have a gender balance reading this, it's just impossible. There wouldn't be you know that much, but if we make it part of the conversation and make people aware of it, and then hope that in time, uh, people will pay this forward, I think is a really important, you know, important sort of thing. But I think it's just mainly a case of everyone kind of checking themselves, checking their own privilege because my god, am I so privileged? I'm a White, middle-class, privately educated person from London um, and just thinking about what can I do in a particular context I think is a really helpful one. And just being willing to listen and be thoughtful about your actions. I make mistakes all the time with it. I constantly think, oh, God, I could have done that better, I could have said that better. But it's just, it's a work in progress. We are all, the whole discipline is a work in progress, but I'm hoping that particularly how far the dialogue in the temporary world has come on in the last two or three years in particular that this is going to impact back into the kind of questions we're asking about diversity um, and the difference between full-on discrimination and very subtle forms um, of structures, structural change which, which discriminate about people from a certain background or a certain gender. And I think the more that people are aware of that, the better. Mm. I think
0: when you said people just have to listen yeah. and be thoughtful I think that's a good way of, of putting it I think that's the most important thing I think the problem nowadays increasingly is that people well maybe it's not a problem nowadays it's always been a problem but particularly in the world of social media people don't listen to each other so much a lot of people shout at each other yeah. it's across... basic
1: empathy though isn't it yeah. it's just like
0: and just going back to what you were saying about people being human there's, there is a lack of sometimes understanding particularly via things like social media, about people being human. It mm. becomes like people who like cartoons arguing at each other through like avatars.
1: Well, and the problem is I think when I've seen problems like this in in academia, um, it's, it's almost never been malicious. It's never been someone like, I'm like, like cackling evilly and rubbing my hands. so am I going to organise a conference which has only male speakers? If they didn't set out to do that, um, I hope... <laughs> It's, uh, and, but the interesting thing is I have had occasions past when I had politely called up people and they um, reacted quite aggressively to that, which I was kind of like, clearly, I've hit a nerve there. But we have to be ready to be called up for stuff. Like, I think, like, so for example, I, I did a course last semester that I did not talk about um, gender or female figures enough at all, and I feel like I only got away with that because I'm female. Otherwise, <laughs> the class would have been like, "Wait a second, why did we only have one class out of ten on this topic?" So I know that in the future I'm, i I've reflected on that and I'm going to do better. So, but yeah, it's a it's a matter of. But I think there's a, because the resources are so scarce in various areas of academia. I feel like we see this as oh, we'd love to do that if we had the possibility or if we could do that, Um, rather than kind of making it like a cultural change. Like really think like when you're writing for a call for paper, let's step back and let's reflect. Let's send that to someone else and see what they think. Let's think about how we might frame this differently in order to gain a more diverse out, you know of, of applications like how why how might we make this more welcoming or more, more different and that doesn't have to compromise academic integrity in any way it's not a numbers game it's about the fact that i know that my gender informs my writing a lot i know it really informs how i approach the topic and isn't it good to just get a more diverse outlook? It's best for the, you know, for the, for the discipline, for the research, for everything. It's, it's best to get a more diverse outlook on these things.
0: I think change is, it, I think it is coming, yeah. but it's, it is gradual. It's, it's, it would be interesting, I've said to people, it would be interesting to go to a conference and say 10 years time, 20 years time and see what the landscape of that is like. Compared to what it is now,
1: and I think, particularly, it's a classics problem in particular because it has this very strong, it has this amazing as a discipline, has this incredible history, which is also in a way um, holding it back in certain ways because it grew up in a world as a discipline which now no longer exists, where the 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 you know the parameters of what we are, why, who goes to university, and why we go has changed such a lot. Um, and but there is fantastic work done in these areas, and very self-aware work done. And you know, people work very hard within classics. I think part of it is I don't really see myself as a classicist. Uh, I like being an ancient historian because I feel like it's a bigger, it's a bigger, more diverse label. And I like the fact that I work on late antiquity because I feel that is a really excitingly diverse topic of diverse sort of field of study as well but i think yeah as you said like it's going to be really exciting 10 20 years if we're still we're still in the game 10 20 years from now like how we're going to be called out by our juniors it'll be great they'll be like actually dr Usherwood, i think you i think you're you're being a little close-minded about that and i will hopefully react in a really good way <laughs> but uh, no it's i yeah, I think the, the kind of the idea of what it means to be an academic who is, is, is changing rapidly. One thing I really love is the amount of, particular Trinity, the amount of uh, mature students we have. Mm, yeah, there it's is. It's fantastic. Big
0: growth in that area now.
1: It changes the way seminars function to have those voices and have, those, have that diversity in the classroom. It changes everyone ups their game and it's good for everyone. So, yeah. I think that's something, do you find this at our career stage we're in that really weird, like, I call it the mentoring sandwich <laughs> when I am still so dependent on mentoring and support from other people and yet I'm finding myself mentoring and supporting people so I'm kind of like burger <laughs> in the sandwich, and it's a really, it's a really humbling position to be in, because you're at, you know, you're at both sides, and you're like, oh, do I have a result? Do I have the authority to give advice and help on these kind of things, either to a peer or to somebody who's a PhD student or someone, you know, where, where like, and then I'm like, help me, people, read my stuff for me and give me career advice. But it's yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting. But the question is like, when do we formally move out of that? Because I think that quite I think a I lot. Really do. I think quite a lot of senior senior members of staff really want mentoring, the same that we get at early career. They really, they'd really like having someone to touch base with. Yeah,
0: I don't think that ever stops does it really. I think even for however long you want, your uh, wherever long they can do your supervisors or examiners, whatever. As long as they're still re- willing to read your work and give you advice. Yeah. then... What? You, probably, you always need that. I mean, recently I know um, Mary Beard was tweeting the other day about Joyce Reynolds celebrating her 100th birthday, and talking about how much of thought she had, and i about got she probably still goes to her and asks her for advice after all these years. Because you would, uh, I suppose. Yeah,
1: I have a lot of different people that I ask different things to. And one of the hardest things I've... Actually, a really good lesson I've learnt only in the last year or so is not being afraid to ask for help. I spent too much time being very alienated, moving from institution to institution, not wanting to ask people for help. But I found that people were more than willing and very flattered to be asked. And so now I have, like, different touches. Like, it was like, I have this problem. I approach this person with this problem. Or, like, various different things, very different perspectives. Because there's no right or wrong way of doing most things. But it's, it's about... Finding and one of the, you know, it's been quite hellish, let's be honest, moving job to job to job. But one of the wonderful benefits of it is I've had the great privilege of working with a range of amazing people, amazing scholars. So I've met and worked with a lot of, a lot of people. And that's really cool because I can then bug them (laughs) for the rest of eternity for help and advice about various things. No shame, no shame at all. Yeah. I think
0: that's a good note to end on actually. Really? Never had any shame. Never, yeah. Like, oh, Don't yeah. have any
1: shame. Constantly ask for help. Um, they'll tell you if you're annoying.
0: Or they'll just stop responding.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they might do that as well.
0: <laughs> but even still, never be afraid to ask for help.
1: No, always be. We always need help. I think we're, we're too too proud to ask for it but it can be because a lot of the time I think in academia you get so caught I, I realized with my book one of the things I was really struggling with a book rewrite is I was so caught up in my own head and I ultimately was arguing just myself constantly re-arguing with myself I have a very
0: strange golem esque yes, image Yeah, it's my just head, like that but I'm then, pretty much like do you refer to your book as your precious it's
1: my precious <laughs> take me some really fantastic colleagues to be like, Rebecca, I think this is what you're trying to say and I think you're there for me to be like, I think this is what I'm trying to say and I think I'm there well, That's
0: what <laughs> so, I say to yeah. mushrooms, that sometimes all you need is a, a five minute conversation to really sort things out about how you should proceed.
1: Do you know, I had a term, I gave my book introduction to my, my colleague Miles at St Andrews and I was like, I'm stuck, I've tried I spent like three weeks reading lots of memory theory and, stuff, and he was just like ultimately, this is great, this needs work, but I think this is what you're trying to say. And that was, like, like maybe a couple of hours of his time, and it made an enormous difference. It made such a big difference to me. And this is, like, the, the joy of the mentoring stuff, that if you can make, just with a little bit of insight, make that difference to somebody, as well as benefiting from it, it's just wonderful. Yeah.
0: It is a rewarding confession.
1: It is! I think sometimes we can lose sight... Bit, because we get so caught up in the pressures and the, the how stretched we are and what is increasingly being asked of us by people who have never been academics telling us what being an academic looks like and how our time should work like. But ultimately, again, like what a privilege. I pinch myself. I'm just like, I get paid a good salary to talk and think about the Romans all of the time. That is... That is extremely cool. Yeah. Do you ever get that when you're just oh, yeah. like, yeah,
0: yeah.
1: I can't believe this is my job?
0: Yeah. So there's no, nice. uh, I also think to myself, sometimes if like six or seven year old, me, could mm. see where I ended up now, they'd be like,
1: what? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know, actually. I had very high expectations of myself when I was younger, so I'd probably be quite, be, be like, what the hell is going on here? Um, but... Yeah, no, it's a cool job.
0: And on the bright side, even if all else fails, you just listen to some Hans Zimmer. Oh
1: my god, yes! Do 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 do. Yeah. And on that note, we we'll yeah. won.
0: <laughs> Thank you very much.
1: Oh, brilliant!
0: Thanks for listening to Coffee and Circuses. The Roman poet Juvenal once said, people will be content as long as you give them bread and circuses. But if I'm going to talk to somebody, I'd rather do it over coffee than bread. You can find me, David Walsh, on Twitter at D underscore J underscore Walsh or contact me about the show at coffeeandcircuses at gmail.com. That's full and. Don't forget, you can subscribe, rate and review the show on iTunes and Spotify. Big thank you to the Institute of Classical Studies, who support the podcast via one of their public engagement grants. The theme tune is La Kahora by Royal Music, available for download at freemusicarchive.org. And in the background right now, you can hear an 8-bit version of the Indiana Jones theme by Miles Metal, originally by John Williams, but you all know that, which is available on YouTube. Thanks again for listening, and remember, it's better to be a gladiator than a diocletian.